By 1985, the bloom was coming off the rose with regards to the super vehicle boom of the early 1980s. Blue Thunder had crashed and burned after 13 lackluster episodes, and Knight Rider and Airwolf were both entering what would be their final seasons. However, there was one vehicle that had not been turbocharged and reimagined for the future. The motorcycle. Long seen as the symbol of youthful rebellion and iconoclasm, the motorcycle had largely been overlooked in the king of the super vehicle, Jerry Anderson's work. And although we'd had two helicopters, a car, a truck in the fall guy and a van in the 80, the motorcycle had remained mostly ignored. Bringing all that to an end for one last gasp of super vehicle stardom was Streethawk, an all-terrain attack motorcycle designed to fight urban crime, capable of incredible speeds up to 300 miles an hour, and immense firepower, as it ran in the opening saga cell. Streethawk was created by Paul M. Bellows and Robert Bob Wolstersdorf, and further refined by Bruce Lansbury, who commissioned the series for ABC television. It's quite a surprise, therefore, that three different creators couldn't come up with something less derivative. Street Hawk is part Knight Rider with a dollop of Airwolf and equal doses of Marvel comic superheroes Ghost Rider and Spider-Man. With Knight Rider, we'd already had a man who was recruited to work for a shadowy organisation to do good, and with Airwolf, we'd had the top-secret elements. Street Hawk took these to new heights of absurdity. Street Hawk operated out of a high-tech warehouse and was an urban vigilante, neither endorsed nor approved of by the police. In fact, the police had a warrant out for his arrest. Although his identity was secret, in actuality he was former police motorcycle cop named Jesse Mark, which is a magnificently 80s TV name, and he worked alone apart from the tech support of Norman Tuttle, who developed and designed the cycle. As with Erwolf and Knight Rider, Streethawk could reach supersonic speeds thanks to hyperthrust, which had to be coordinated and executed by Norman back at the base. The pilot movie pretty much explains all of this and sets up the series with another plot concerning Jesse's friend and partner, played by Star Trek Voyager's Robert Beltran. The pilot movie isn't that bad. It's formulaic and predictable and there isn't an original strand to Street Hawk's DNA, but it's earnestly played by actor Rex Smith, who takes on the title role. Smith is your typical bland LA leading man of the era, all high cheekbones and big hair, but he manages to imbue Mark with some depth given a script that centres on a broken man who's all but given up being given another chance. He has none of Jan Michael Vincent's brooding intensity, but he's likeable and charming and holds the attention of the viewer. In an interview on StreetHawkOnline.com, executive producer Burton Armus, who was in a rather candid mood, said the series lacked somebody with star quality and that Smith was probably the best they could afford, implying that Smith was cast before Armus came aboard. No stone cliché is left unturned in Street Hawk, so Jesse is backed up by resident computer genius and creator of the Street Hawk programme, Norman Tuttle, played with scene-stealing aplomb by Joe Regalabuta. Regalabuta brings charm and class to a thankless role, and it's his relationship with the hothead Jesse that is the high point of most episodes. Sure, the odd couple motif has been done to death on television, but when it's done well, as here, it's fun to play and watch. Tuttle is chalk to Mark's cheese. Mark is a reckless daredevil who acts on instinct and gut reaction. 
Tuttle thinks things through, weighs the variables, and prefers to act with a measured response. Streethog is, as mentioned, a vigilante, so he is pursued by mock, sweaty, stressed out and shouty boss, police captain Leo Alterbelly, played by Richard Venture. I say pursued, the police don't actually seem that bothered about Streethog, happy to let him catch the crook so that they can take the credit. The pilot is diverting fun, replete with lashings and lashings of 80s cheese, bad dialogue and some truly excellent stunt work. Smith talks in a special features documentary on the DVD about how they'd get the best stunt people around, as most of the other shows were doing car or helicopter stunts, with only a few doing motorcycle stunt work. As such, a lot of effort and planning went into the stunt preparation, with most of it being practical. Stealing the show in the pilot, though, is Christopher Lloyd, yes, that one, chewing his way through a mostly mediocre script to give the pilot movie a gravitas it doesn't really deserve. Lloyd's bad guy is an out-and-out scumbag, more suited to a gritty show like The Equaliser or Homicide Life on the Street than the goofy fun of Street Hawk. The show's premise also doesn't really stand up to close scrutiny. A lot of these high-concept shows were a bit daft if one thought about it. Why didn't the OSI invest in a dozen Bionic men? Why didn't Wilton Knight make a fleet of kits? But this one is even more outlandish than Erwolf. At least Erwolf attempted to explain why only Stringfellow could fly the titular chopper and why the firm couldn't make more of them. Here that's just glossed over. Norman created and developed Streethawk for the CIA. It's a government-sponsored operation. Why then is it operating in secret in LA? Who does Norman answer to? How long was the Streethawk program going to run for before it was deemed a success or failure? Where was the funding coming from? When does it move into mass production? It's just a real head-scratcher if you give it even a moment's thought. Of course, Streethawk isn't supposed to be thought about. All these things just are. Of course, the most memorable thing about Streethawk, other than the Andy Probert-designed title motorcycle, was its score by German synth-pop supergroup Tangerine Dream. Here's the theme and Saga Cell that opened every episode. <laughs> Mark, an ex-motorcycle cop injured in the line of duty, now a police troubleshooter. He's been recruited for a top-secret government mission to ride Streethawk, an all-terrain attack motorcycle designed to fight urban crime, capable of incredible speeds up to 300 miles an hour and immense firepower. Only one man, federal agent Norman Tuttle, knows Jesse Mark's true identity. The man, the machine, Streethawk. 
the show progressed, the episodes notch up some impressive guest stars, but the scripts remain resolutely mediocre. George Clooney crops up in episode two as a kind of mirror image of Jesse, a player on the other side, if you will. But the script, try as it might, can't conjure up the necessary depth for this to mean much. There's a great chase scene, though, between a 1970 Dodge Charger and Streetheart that is almost worth the price of the DVD set alone. Episode 3 has noted wooden mannequin Marjo Gortner cast as a corrupt Dirty Harry-style cop, complete with perm and mullet. His brand of jaw-clenched stiffness drags Rex Smith down, and both actors have a face-off to see who can deliver the dialogue through gritted teeth the worst. Sybil Downing makes an appearance in episode 4 as a Las Vegas showgirl whose street art must keep alive long enough to testify against her ex-boyfriend, a Vegas mobster. In case you hadn't noticed, Street Art was short on original storylines, but long on great stunt work. Here, the climactic scene where Street Art must survive a helicopter attack whilst riding through Vasquez rocks is almost cinematic, despite the predictable nature of the plot. Speaking of predictable, episode 5 has Street Art engage in the old pop star in trouble plot. This time, it's Daphne Ashbrook in trouble, finding herself in possession of a videotape which shows a murder. It's all rather dull this time around, though, with no standout stunt sequences to keep the viewer entertained. And it's when the plot is as pedestrian as this, you realise that only Norman Tuttle actually has any character. There are a few more scenes now filmed in broad daylight, presumably due to the cost of nighttime location filming. Although the next episode goes back to feature some impressive night location shooting and some equally impressive stunt work. The plot itself is the old protection scam writ large, as numerous companies around the LA area are experiencing mysterious fires. Clue Gallagher guest stars as an ornery businessman who refuses to capitulate and finds his life on the line as a consequence. Gallagher is pretty good in the role, imbuing his character with a sense of honour despite the weak plot. He's also that rarity in US TV, a businessman who's also a decent guy. Of course, the plot isn't why we are here, and street art going up against a microlight aircraft makes for an impressive set piece to climax the show. Mick Jagger's favourite climax, Bianca, crops up in the unsinkable 453, proving as an actress she's a great model. Far more interesting is Hot Target. Joe Regalabuto was Norman is easily the show's MVP, and this episode has him forced to contact an old girlfriend who works for a weapons development company, whose most recent creation has been ripped off by Charles Napier. It's an Erwolf plot through and through, given weight from Regalabuto's endearing performance, and it probably goes without saying that it's a far more believable romance than any of Jesse's dalliances. Having an actor as engaging as Napier as the bad guy is notable as well, and he brings his usual gruff and tough meanness to the role. The Arabian is about a horse theft, and notable only for the notion that the LAPD has absolutely no one else on the police force who can investigate a murder other than Jesse Mark. Karen Harris, who had a long run on The Incredible Hulk and wrote some of that series' best episodes, contributes Female of the Species, arguably the most entertaining episode of the series. There's a reasonably interesting plot with two different strands running side by side, concerning an assassin and a visiting philanthropist. Useless side character Rachel also gets a moment to shine, as she shows her deductive abilities regarding the only real suspect in all of this. Sadly though, there are a lot of plot contrivances, such as how the bad guys keep getting away when Streetheart can do 300 miles an hour, why do Norman and Jesse not trust the FBI to handle this, other than the agent is played by Dennis Franz, and why does the assassin, played by DS9's Mark Alamo, just disappear? 
The guest cast are a huge reason why this episode is so enjoyable, though. But even this pro has a con, in that Anne Turkle is the deadly female of the title, and she's a terrible actress. She wasn't good in Knight Rider, and she's not good here. Surprisingly, someone who is good here is Richard Venture as Alterbelly. He finally gets something to do when he butts heads with Franzi's hard-nosed FBI agent, and he shows his mettle, giving a sparky performance. He even gets some face time with Streethawk for the first time in the series. The final episode, Follow the Yellow Gold Road, deals with a group of armchair vigilantes who believe Streethawk is on their side. Enlivened by a subplot in which Norman can't help because of a power cut in the command centre, Streethawk ends its run as it began. A pleasant diversion, but not much more. Streethawk did not prove to be a success and hyperthrusted off into the sunset after 13 episodes. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right, but Andrew, you're thinking, you normally pause to highlight the better than average or truly great episode of a series you're covering. Well, that's true, lovely listener, I do, but there are no great episodes of Streethawk. There are barely any above average episodes of Streethawk. The show is aggressively middle of the road, barely aspiring to mediocrity even on a good day. Everything about this show is US TV 101. The premise is wackadoodle, the scripts are pedestrian, the characterisation thin. Set pieces are predictable and have all been seen before, be it the old Oh no, the brakes are out as we steer down a steep road, chestnut, or the old friend who is really a bad guy plot. However, despite these issues, or maybe because of them, Streethawk is fun in a undemanding kind of way. If you're channel surfing late at night and you want something not too taxing to fall asleep to or leave on whilst you play a game on your phone, Streethawk is nice moving wallpaper. You can follow a Streethawk plot even if you leave the room for 20 minutes in the middle of the show. It's hard to say how the show would have developed had it continued. Like Knight Rider, would it have had to update the bike every season to keep up with the ever-changing face of technology? Or would it have continued churning out the same old guff, week in, week out, never challenging itself or its audience? Nevertheless, Street Talk is another one of those inexplicably memorable shows, despite its short-lived run. People remember this show for whatever reason. Unlike other shows I've revisited from the Palace archives, though, Street Talk isn't memorable for any real reason other than its aesthetics and the theme, proving once again that a good theme song will paper over an awful lot of cracks. episode didn't last quite as long as I thought it would. I thought it would be nice if I did another one of those episodes where I just look at some random stuff. Over on Hey Kids Comics, my son Michael and I do an annual roundup of what we got for Christmas, but as is the nature of that show, we never revisit the stuff to see what we thought of it. Therefore, I thought it might be fun to look at some of the presents that best suit the remit of this show in more depth. 
First up was the recent Blu-ray BBC release of Sharda, a Doctor Who adventure from 1979, and only the third Who story from the original run to be released on Blu-ray, the others being John Pertwee's debut Spearhead from Space and the Paul McGann TV movie. Sharda has a long and convoluted backstory. Originally, the final story of the show's 17th season, Sharda, written by a then-on-the-cusp-of-major stardom Douglas Adams, was designed to close out the season in style. A lavish location film script filmed in and around Cambridge, it attempted to duplicate the success of Adams' earlier story, City of Death. However, where a city was a tight four episodes, Sharda was a rather bloated six. All of this proved moot anyway, A strike action interrupted filming and, as the BBC prioritised their numerous Christmas specials and rushed those into production, Doctor Who found itself losing studio space and, as such, filming never resumed. Season 17 closed with the lacklustre The Horns of Nemon and six episodes short. The material actually filmed, all the location footage and some studio work was sealed in the BBC vaults where it acquired almost legendary status. Some of the footage found its way into the 20th anniversary story The Five Doctors to substitute for Tom Baker, who decided not to appear, and the rest was shelved. Over the years, there have been many attempts to remount Sharda, but some of those were blocked by Adams himself, who had recycled a lot of the plot into his book, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. This didn't stop producer John Nathan Turner from trying to remake the episode with then-Doctor Colin Baker, although this also came to naught. A VHS release of the story came out in the early 1990s, with linking narration by Tom Baker, but this was largely unsatisfying due to the limitations of the time. Paul McGann, the eighth Doctor, who has had great success reprising his roles in audio plays, starred in a production of Sharda, with Lala Ward returning as the Doctor's Time Lady companion Romana. But this too felt off somehow. McGann is a great Doctor, and he deserves better than someone else's cast-offs. Sharda was novelised by Gareth Roberts, and a jolly good job of it he did too, even if by this point it feels like every inch of the barrel-labelled Douglas Adams' Doctor Who work has been scraped so thoroughly that daylight can be seen peeking through. Still, the BBC are nearing the end of the lucrative Doctor Who DVD line, with few stories left to dust off, so it made sense to try and make a few more bob from Sharda. Perhaps inspired by fan Ian Levine, who mounted his own version of Sharda with animated links, the BBC released a Patrick Troughton adventure, The Power of the Daleks, in animated form, using the audio which still survived, and then did the same with a lost episode of Dad's Army. They then turned their eye to Sharda. This was a more difficult process than the previous endeavours, as Sharda was piecemeal. Some footage from all the episodes exists, and the animators had to make the animation fit to the live-action footage whilst not being too jarring. It's one thing to watch a completely animated recreation of a show, even if that show has the original audio. It's another to watch live-action switch to animation and back. So what was the result? Well, Shadow is still too long. Gareth Roberts made it work as a novel, but as a six-part episode, it does drag. To make matters slightly worse in that regard, the animators have chosen to make Sharder available only as a 136-minute feature, rather than make it six episodes, meaning it's a bit of a butt-number watching it all in one sitting. 
The animated transitions aren't too jarring though, so kudos for the animators for that. And they've even mounted some small live action filming sequences using body doubles and new effects to paper over some of the cracks very effectively. As this is a Douglas Adams script, there are a lot of neat little touches, some great ideas, and Tom Baker as the Doctor and Lala Ward as Romana are clearly having great fun with Adams' clever dialogue. Baker and Ward were an item at this point, and their easy camaraderie permeates every scene. Contrast this to the next season, where their romance was more rocky, and they are very tetchy with each other. All of the guest cast are superb, and all of the still-living ones return to voice over the animated sequences, but Christopher Neem is especially fun as the villain of the piece, Skagra. Not enough attention is devoted to the romantic nature of Claire and Chris's relationship, so they end up being somewhat forgotten as the story unfolds. The score, though, is lovely, very evocative of the late Dudley Simpson's work, and it blends perfectly with this era of Doctor Who. The novelty of Sharder just about overcomes its weaknesses, and if you can overcome its legacy, it's still a solid and enjoyable story, despite its length. It's certainly a better ending to season 17 than the horny Nimoy. The selling point for this, though, is clearly its Blu-ray release. As usual for Auntie Beeb, all the location footage was shot on film, so it was a relatively easy task to clean this up for 1080p resolution. The animated sequences likewise produced in HD, so all that was left for the magnificent team at the BBC to clean up was the limited amount of studio footage. As you might expect, this is more of a mixed bag. By its nature, it's blurrier than location animated footage, but it looks about as good as you could expect. For all intents and purposes, though, without benefit of a real time machine and the ability to point out to the Beeb that Doctor Who will be the real evergreen title and not the Rolf Harris Christmas special, this is the best we're going to get, and a good job has been done by all. As is the norm, the special features are amazing and well worth checking out, detailing the history of this story and the time it was made. If you want to shell out money for the Steelbook, you get an additional third disc, featuring the two previous attempts to bring Sharder to the public. The capper, though, is the final scene. Tom Baker actually filmed the final scene in live action, stood in the TARDIS and decked out in his Doctor's costume one last time. It's easy to overlook that Baker is now 37 years older than the other live-action footage, just for the sheer joy of seeing him again, for what will probably be his last time. He's still got it, and as he stands up from behind the TARDIS console, looks directly into the camera and grins that toothy grin, it's hard not to feel both somewhat emotional and eight years old again. Problems with Sharda drifted away, and I was left with such a lovely glow that I suddenly had to go and fetch a tissue... There was something in my eye. I also received a late Christmas present off my wife, Dr. Forth, a Mr. Man book from the Roger Hargreaves collection. The Mr. Men were a children's series debuting just after I did in the early 1970s. They were little morality tales centred around the Mr. Men, Mr. Happy, Mr. Grumpy, Mr. Messy and so forth. They were great little books and I read all of them to my kids as they grew up. After Hargreaves passed away, his son Adam took over and he added more titles and the Little Miss range. More recently, there have been Mr. Men stories for all the Doctors and the fourth Doctors. Goes something like this. Come along, Sarah, cried the Doctor. The Doctor and Sarah Jane were running away. It seemed to Sarah Jane that the two of them spent an awful lot of time running away. And what were they running away from this time? They were running away 
from the Daleks. Seek! Locate! Exterminate! grated the Daleks in their metallic voices. Daleks don't run, but they do chase. The Daleks were a terrible alien race intent on just one thing. To destroy. To exterminate. To exterminate everything. Although some Daleks were rather better at exterminating than others. Like number Z403, better known to his friends as Dale. Dale the Dalek's energy ray was not so convincing. But Doctor, what are we going to do? puffed Sarah Jane. Well, that's simple, cried the Doctor. Keep running and uh, don't get exterminated. Which, it has to be said, made perfect sense. If we can get to the TARDIS, then we can lead the Daleks away from the planet, said the Doctor, skidding around a corner and into an alleyway. Doctor, that's a dead end, warned Sarah Jane. What are we going to do? Uh, climb the ladder, of course, said the Doctor. And to Sir Jane's surprise, there was indeed a ladder. But how did you know? began Sir Jane. Keep up, Sarah, said the Doctor, clambering over the wall. And don't forget to pull the ladder up behind and bring it with you. The wall stopped the Daleks, but not for long. The Daleks did not lead a ladder. In fact, Daleks don't climb ladders. Daleks have energy rays, and in a matter of moments they had exterminated the wall. Sarah Jane and the Doctor came to a wide river. There was a drawbridge, but the control lever was on the other side. Would you like a jelly baby? asked the Doctor. I don't think this is the moment to be handing out jelly babies, Sarah Jane cried in exasperation. Not you, said the Doctor. That pigeon. Sure enough, one of the pigeons did in fact want a jelly baby, and it took off, it knocked the drawbridge lever, and the Doctor and Sarah Jane was able to safely cross the liver. With the drawbridge raised once again, they had escaped one lot of Daleks. Daleks don't swim, and they don't like jelly babies. In fact, the list of things that Daleks can't do is long, but not as long as the list of things that Daleks don't like. They don't like kittens, they don't like flowers, they don't like ice cream, and they definitely don't like tennis. There's only one thing that Daleks like, and that is exterminating things. But Doctor and Sarah Jane were now faced with even more Daleks blocking the road ahead. Oh, now where has it gone? said the Doctor. Where has what gone? asked Sarah Jane. Really, Sarah, you must keep up. Ah, there it is. Sarah Jane was becoming more puzzled by the minute as they climbed onto the bicycle that the Doctor had been looking for. Pedal faster! cried the Doctor as they weaved between the Daleks standing in the road avoiding the energy rays. There was only one Dalek close enough to stop them. Luckily, it was Dale. Once they had avoided the Daleks, they came to another road, a very busy road. Fortunately, there was a stop sign that held back the traffic, and the Doctor and Sarah Jane pedalled across, but there was nothing to stop the Daleks from doing the same. Or was there? Beside the stop sign was a bucket of paint and a brush. Well, that's lucky, cried Sarah Jane, grabbing the brush and painting over the stop sign. Luck, said the Doctor. Nothing to do with luck. It's called good planning. Don't forget the paint bucket. Now that the traffic was no longer held back by the stop sign, the cars roared off, and by the time the Daleks reached the road, it was too busy to cross. Finally, the Doctor and Sarah Jane reached the TARDIS. Why on earth did you make me bring all this stuff along with us? asked Sarah Jane. Well, there is a perfectly obvious reason, Sarah. If we do not bring these things, then how would we be able to go back and leave them for us to find later? The Doctor replied. Well, that's as clear as mud, cried Sarah Jane. I do have a time machine, and I am a time lord, so I can go back in time and practice. And as we all know, practice makes perfect.
And I never travel anywhere without a jelly baby. See? Fun. Fun little stories from the Mr. Men range. The other major Blu-ray present I received was the Superman 3-hour extended TV cut. Originally aired as a special event on TV, this 3-hour cut has never been commercially released, and although I have seen all the footage, I've never sat and watched this as a whole, this cut being never screened in the UK. For the most part, I'm of the opinion that extended or director's cuts really make any difference. If a film is good, a longer cut doesn't normally make it better, it just makes it longer. If a film is bad, rarely does the additional footage make it better, just easier to see what the director was going for. Only The Abyss actually makes the movie better, in that the ending makes more sense, but it's still overblown, albeit enjoyable. So I approached this version with some trepidation. For the first 90 minutes or so, what I thought still stood true. There aren't any new scenes added to the film per se, just extensions of previous scenes, so the Krypton Council scenes are longer, which did add to the feeling that the Council didn't just dismiss Jarrell out of hand, and Lois seeing Clark run past the train has some more dialogue, which makes Lois seem a good eight years younger than Clark. Other scene additions were best cut. Krypton takes forever to blow up, as we get shot after shot after shot of people tripping over and falling into chasms. Lane and Brad's car journey has loads of beauty shots that were probably only filmed to give Richard Donner some coverage in the editing bay, and Clark takes forever to walk to the Fortress of Solitude. It's fascinating to see just how editing helps a film's pace, and why it is necessary, even if this is a lesson film fans still haven't learned, as we see loads of people on shit sorry Twitter asking for a four-hour cut of The Black Panther, a film that hasn't even been released yet. Once we get to Metropolis, though, the film picks up. The additions to the Daily Planet scenes are nice, and it highlights the acting here. Everybody is doing something in the background. The pursuit of Otis goes on for far too long, but it's a lovely touch that Clark and Lois get in a cab as Otis walked past. And the scene with Lexi's babies is also a pleasant addition. This has a nice payoff at the end where Lex is set to feed Miss Tessmacher to his babies, only to have Superman rescue her. There is only one completely new scene, and it was a wonder why it was dropped in the first place. Superman running the gauntlet when entering Lexi's lair is pretty awesome, so much so that Donna added it back into his director's cut in 2006. Other additions are again scene extensions, such as some of the Lex Otis Miss Tessmacher moments having additional lines of dialogue, or Lois and Jimmy's impromptu and out-of-place photo shoot in the desert. Overall, and as with all extended versions, this doesn't make the film better, and it's not the version to go into the wider arena, but as a fan, it was nice to see it. I also got the Lethal Weapon Season 1 Blu-ray set, but that is going to be a topic for another show. Finally today, the redoubtable Professor Alan Middleton, Latverian ambassador to the UN, also sent me a package with stuff in it. I thought it might be fun to look at one of these comics the good prof sent me just for giggles. The issue I read was Space 1999, issue number 2, entitled Survival, and written by Nicola Cootie and drawn by Joe Staten. Space 1999, for those not in the know, was a Jerry Anderson production running from 1974 to 1976, and was famous for having some truly magnificent sets, production designs and special effects, yet sorely lacking in the story and writing department. Now, I adore Space 1999, but I'm not blind to the fact that an awful lot of the episodes are pretty poor from a writing standpoint. Anderson deserves all the credit in the world for trying to make a TV version of 2001 A Space Odyssey and for making the show look as cinematic as it does, especially for the time it was made, 
but it was not a perfect show by any means. Oddly, given my fondness for the show and the fact that artist John Byrne worked on a few issues, I've never read any issues of this series. It was published by Charlton Comics, which I don't really recall getting any kind of distribution in the UK. Also, the series only lasted seven issues, so that's not really a lot of time to get into it. The plot to this issue is a familiar one, and even uses the title of an earlier Anderson show, UFO, that had the same basic idea. Commander Koenig, Professor Bergman, and a Space 1999 equivalent of a red shirt travel to a planet that Moonbase Alpha is passing by to see if there's anything they can use. They have detected that the planet seems uninhabited but has a breathable atmosphere. Koenig, Bergman and Redshirt crash and are stranded where they come across a life form, a big blue creature called Bruin. When the Redshirt is killed and Bergman is MIA, Koenig must work with Bruin for them both to survive. Yes, it's that plot again. However, there's no denying that this is a nice little science fiction tale well told. The writer goes into a lot of detail on how Koenig tries to survive, how he'll go about getting shelter and his trouble finding food on an alien planet. The differences between Space 1999 and Star Trek are readily apparent, as the Alphans assume everybody is after them, which leads to the misunderstanding that kicks off the plot. But Koenig's interactions with Bruin are good. As with the later Star Trek episode, Darbok, communication is key, with neither of them understanding each other, yet managing to make the best of the situation, even saving each other's lives. And the final lesson, where Bruin learns the value of a friend, isn't mawkish or sentimental. Credit also for the offbeat nature of the story. We never once go to Moonbase Alpha, and, other than a last-page appearance by Dr Helena Russell, no other members of the cast make an appearance. The art, however, is inconsistent. The cover is a wonderful painted image by Staten of Koenig fighting Bruin with lush yellow sun and red sky in the background. Interior work is mostly okay, but Koenig and Bergman manage the difficult task of looking like their characters whilst having no resemblance whatsoever to the actors that played them. Pretty neat. There's also a nice text page at the back about the different stars in the sky. All told, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed this, despite the flaws. A bit like the show itself, really. Many thanks to Professor Allen for sending that to me. And I'll play a commercial trailer for Sunday's show, probably Allen's, and uh, we'll be right back with some email. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Identity Crisis. Lone Wolf and Cub. Hergé's Tintin. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. I didn't know this was going to be the Jimmy Olsen hate podcast. (laughs) It's always the Jimmy Olsen hate podcast. And the great feats of editing, not yet performed. Ultraman, this is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultraman... Of how they spoke at length when I read a comic story comes first and art comes second. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. Those are our people, Emily. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Superman has basically the same relationship with Wonder Woman that he has with Batman. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. 
aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. And we're back with the email section. The mock wonderful time of the year is email from Jack Bone. Bond. Probably Bond. Hello, Jack. Season's greetings, Andrew. There's no place like home for the holidays, whether it's to mate or to die. The remastered episodes were aired as of the completed, more or less. It was a weekly syndication schedule. And what with online discussion being synchronised to the same episode, and by having gone the longest time so far since having rewatched them, I watched them with the freshest eyes possible. One thing that struck me is that I'd absorbed all the plots at a young age before I could fully understand them. You might say I knew what was going to happen before I knew what was going on. This was the most apparent in what a little girl's made of, and the shocking revelation that Roger Corby was, well, spoilers. I hadn't thought about it in connection with Spark, looking at a picture of a girl we weren't supposed to know is to bring. What would 60s audiences make of it? Well, what would they expect if one of the guys in the Rat Patrol were looking at a picture of a young girl, or Marshal Matt Dillon were looking at a daguerreotype? I would suspect a hitherto unrevealed daughter from a tragic past. This is only what I think they would expect. I suspect the worst 60s TV would do would be a hitherto unrevealed daughter of a hitherto unrevealed sibling giving a tragic past at one step removed. One other thing I noticed this time around was costumes. Production saved money on Vulcan ears by covering them with helmets. Luckily they had helmets designed to cover Romulan ears left over from Balance of Terror. One can imagine the tradition bound Vulcans and Romulans keeping the same design from the time they were one people. It's a bit harder to explain how a Romulan uniform got recut and re-dyed to make festive sashes. A friend in online discussion noted that fans got their first taste of Klingons as a recurring menace with a background mention here, although Friday's Child was possibly filmed first. He's also the one who dubbed the new mountains on Vulcan Wiley Coyote Ridge. <laughs> Christmas cheers. Jack, well, thank you for emailing in, Jack. I'm glad you enjoyed the Amok Time commentary, which was in no way a uh, a Christmas episode other than I released it at Christmas. So um, I'm glad it went down well. Review of the Incredible Hulk series uh, from Jason Trenner. Greetings. Well, that was an interesting six issues. Thing is, two of the stories were reprinted in the strange transformations of the Incredible Hulk trade. The Hulk being able to transform in the day and when he had to wear a mask over his face being wands. I'm a bit amused that the first supervillain foe of the Hulk to appear was Tyrannus. He's a wonderfully crazy foe and surprised he wasn't in the Hulk and the Agents of Smash cartoon. Speaking of the last Hulk cartoon, I find it odd that the Avengers give the Hulk a shot in the arm in popularity and he gets a two season cartoon out of it and Superman gets nothing after Man of Steel. Off the Man of Steel and back to the Hulk comic, have you covered the Hulk-Superman crossover comic? It is set not long after the final issue of the Hulk's original run and a lot of fun. Love the show as always. Jason, yes, we did. Michael and I covered that on an episode of Hey Kids Comics. I do not remember which episode it was, but I do believe if you go to the Two True Freaks main page... In fact, I'm doing that now just to save you the trouble. And you scroll down to the Hey Kids Comics link, which is about a third of the way down from the top. And then you scroll all the way through past the uh, the many specials we've done since not doing Hey Kids Comics as a regular concern. And 
uh, last year, The Force Awakens. I think we covered it just before we called it a day on the regular show. But uh, I could be wrong. Wow, rum sodomy and Captain Lash. <laughs> I'm quite proud of that title, to be honest with you. Um, Luke Cage, a Supergirl episode. Wow, we did some good stuff on Hey Kids, didn't we? Oh, God, the Jeff Johns, John Romita run on Superman. Ooh, 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 ooh that, just, that just makes, uh, that gives you hives, doesn't it? Jail Avengers. Uh, the Batman Spider. Oh, there it is. Hey Kid Comics, Volume Four, Issue Twelve. Gugger me, it's the Gap Man. Um, posted Thursday, January the eighth, twenty fifteen. We looked at the Superman Incredible Hulk crossover and Mega City One's finest Judge Dread and Batman. So uh, there you go. So there you go. That's an episode of Hey Kids that you can happily go and download. And listen to what we thought about that. Nathaniel Wayne has also emailed in. Remembering when sci-fi was sci-fi. As in S-Y-F was... You know what I mean. Hey there, Andy. Hey there, Nathaniel. Just listen to the latest episode of Palace. While I had fun listening to you go on about the A-Team, I don't have much to add. It's one of the things I have an awareness of, but never watched. I was a bit young for it. And just knew it as the thing Mr. T is best known for. But I do want to springboard off your and Chris Franklin's mention of the Sci-Fi Channel from the feedback section. I think the fact that they changed the spelling, I choose to pronounce the current spelling as Siffy, pretty much says it all. They were looking to not be as boxed in by the name. Whilst it's easy to get tunnel vision, they followed the path that most of the cable networks originally built around specific niches, TV Land, AMC, Cartoon Network, etc. have gone. They all started out largely as a repository of a specific flavour of nostalgia, but over time moved into original content. It's hard to bemoan them this, because once you've got the funds to produce your own stuff, the potential for profit goes up. You're no longer having to split revenue on royalties because you have to license existing material. I don't even really do much more than shrug at the continued output of deliberately bad movies, since rerunning the kind of stuff that would be shown on Mystery Science Theatre 3000 was a pretty sizeable chunk of their lineup when they started. The evolution of all this is pretty standard at this point, but it does result in the odd effect that shows you would think would be on sci-fi end up elsewhere, because if they have a dead block to fill, it costs them less money to just rerun stuff they wholly own. So your classic treks or hulks or twilight zones end up playing in places that aren't quite as intuitive. That's actually a very good point, and Nathaniel often makes very good points. I hadn't considered that, but yeah, the sci-fi channel's probably into making its own shit, because, you know, easy easy to make more money, you know. I just kind of wish they'd show a bit more good sci-fi. There was one night, God, is this six, six to eight months ago, where I think they must have inadvertently shown good stuff. They showed three good sci-fi films back to back. I know one of them was A Clockwork Orange, um, and I'm sure one of them was Logan's Run, and there was another one. They showed three quality old sci-fi films, and over summer they showed The Omega Man, and um, Soylent Green as well. It was nice to see them on the Sci-Fi Channel again. Um, recently, they've, they've gone back to showing pap. But uh, it was nice to have that momentary blip where they remembered that they were a Sci-Fi Channel. Nathaniel continues, I don't have normal TV anymore. It's all streaming these days. But even as it evolved, I did enjoy some of the later output of Sci-Fi. My daughter's mother and I really got into face-off for a while. And let us not forget that the revived Battlestar Galactica was a sci-fi original show. 
Over here, the librarians is on TNT, but it tickled me to hear you call it out because I just enjoy the heck out of that show. It's the kind of light romp that feels in very short supply these days. Yeah, I like I like the librarians. It's a weird one, the librarians. I don't make a point of watching it every week, but when I watch it, I always enjoy it. Um, and it's by the same people that made Leverage, so it has that vibe of being a fun show. Lightweight, they do occasionally go a little bit dark, but yeah, it's 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 a fun romp, and it describes um, the the librarian's profile. Great work as always, geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne, Council of Geeks, now with over ten thousand YouTube subscribers. I bet I don't have ten thousand YouTube subscribers. Really, rather jealous now. Anyway, I finally emailed tonight, catching up with the palaces from Daniel Doherty. Happy New Year, Andy. Happy New Year, Daniel. Your Christmas commentary for a mock time was a real treat. Really brings back some good holiday memories involving Star Trek. Growing up, I specifically remember asking Santa for classic Star Trek toys and getting nothing but next generation stuff. It was an uphill battle for several years until Christmas 1993 when I received the classic bridge crew set from Playmates Toys. It was all my dreams come true. I finally had action figures of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Uhura, Sulu and Chekhov. To this day, they remain my favourite Star Trek toys. I was most fascinated by your discussion with Dr. Bill Robinson about his dreams. Wowzers, Dr. Bill should consider turning some of that batshit crazy dreams into movies, especially the one about being a Victorian-era policeman who stumbles upon an old lady that uses people as fertiliser for her garden. I've mentioned many times Bill should, should write them or get Mark Khan back to draw them as, um, as like horror comics or whatever, because uh, Bill's dreams were, were quite fascinating. As for the A-Team, Daniel continues, yes, they are a live-action cartoon. I discovered this show when I was in high school in the early 2000s. It was the perfect blend of action, adventure and comedy. The plots may have been formulaic, but it was the characters that kept me bringing me back. Sorry. That kept bringing me back. My apologies. Howlin' Mad Murder was my favourite. Dwight Schultz was a comic genius. I remember one episode where Face asks Hannibal why he puts up with Murdoch's eccentricities. And Hannibal basically said that he humours him because at the end of the day, he can always count on Murdoch to fly them out of any situation. Eagerly awaiting whatever you have planned for the coming year. Sincerely, Dan Doherty. Well, thank you very much for emailing in Dan, Nathaniel, Jason and Jack. It was a pleasure to hear from you. What's coming up this year? Not going to clue. I'm in the middle of writing a Lethal Weapon episode because I'm currently re-watching all of those on Blu-ray. But as usual, this show, it's whatever takes my fancy, isn't it? As usual, I need to do the housekeeping bit. This is a Two True Freaks presentation and um, uh, available on the Two True Freaks podcasting network I, I stumbled over what i was saying for a minute there. there are many good shows on the two true freaks network currently live and direct were trentus magnus punches reality is it jaws back to the bins listen to the prophets i'm just scrolling through the most recent episodes that have been posted j guys and jedi the man of screen podcast um and that's all that's on the front page at the moment. But there are other ongoing concerns as well, all of which are worth checking out. Apologies if I've not mentioned it, but there's a lot of shows on there, dude. If you have a look, you know, we've, we've got quite a lot. On that page, there is the option to buy your shit through Amazon. And if you buy your shit through our link that takes you to Amazon, you continue to support this glorious network, which means you continue to support us putting up our lovely content, which is just 
for you. Email to this show can be sent to heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and I will read all your emails on the show. You can comment on show postings on Facebook and Twitter and all that gubbins as well. But um, by the time I actually sit down to record, I've normally forgotten what you've said. Although I do try to respond straight away. Anyway, thank you very much for joining me for this, this little hodgepodge episode. I quite like hodgepodge episodes because, you know, stuff that, you know, isn't really going to merit a full episode but allows you to just have a look at a little bit of things. Also, it feels like a review radio show then. Old-timey review radio show, which I'm quite fun. Uh, I will see you next time with whatever it is that takes my fancy. Take care, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.